You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. The Sports Fix Thursday. Tommy's here. I am here. Uh, Legit. Not making it up. Somebody, a friend of mine texted me and said, are you hooked on painkillers? Is that why you missed yesterday's show? (laughs) No, I'm not hooked on painkillers, and I haven't had to take the painkillers now for two consecutive days. Um, I'm feeling a little bit better on that end. Thanks for asking. Um, No, we had had legit problems in here. I had John Keim ready to go, um, and we had major technical issues, uh, not only with our phone system, but with our... Uh, with with our connection to the desktop, I had to get a, uh, some IT people in here, so I actually I had to have people come into the studio, and I didn't require them to wear masks. Um, and I just really no, nah, whatever. Jesus Christ! And they didn't and they didn't do it. Uh, the first guy did, and then the second guy didn't, so I didn't really say anything. And then they got me on the phone with somebody that was trying to fix things remotely. And then I decided to bail on the podcast because it wasn't going to happen at that point. It was two o'clock. Um, and I, um, I left and just said, you gotta, you gotta call me and, or text me and let me know if everything's fixed, because if not, I'll have to go to Silver Spring to do the radio show this uh, this morning. And they texted me, you know, at about 8 o'clock last night, and they said, we got everything fixed, you should be good to go. And we are. You and I, I did the radio show from the studio, and here you and I are doing the podcast, and it's being recorded. Let me just check again. Yes, it is. You want to give me a quick sound check, Tommy? A uh, quick sound check? I don't do anything quick, Kevin. Including quickly. sound check. Your- I'll do it as quickly as I can. You're good. So given my I just looked at it. You're fine. You're fine. Okay. Um, you know, somebody on Twitter probably came up with with the uh, the truth. They said you were screwing around with that stand up desk, weren't you? <laughs> That's better than the painkillers thing. Um, <laughs> I was. I have been fooling around a little bit with the stand-up, sit-down desk and the fact that I can move the desk up and stand up and move it down and sit down. I've had a little bit of fun with that uh, over the last couple of days. I'm sitting right right now, comfortable sitting, so that's a good sign. Um, but no, that didn't have anything to do with it, although it could have had something to do with it now that I think about it because the first time we raised the desk up, it was pulling some wires pretty hard, but I think everything was fine. I don't know. What the hell do I know? Um, anyway, uh, I wanted to start real quickly before we get to some uh, issues like the Del Rio tw- Twitter storm the other night, the RG3 interview with John Kime, um, and some other things. I, I've told you at least once about Howard Gutman, who was the ambassador to Belgium under Obama, And, you know, he's involved with this company that's developing one of the scanners for professional sports leagues um, that will not only take temperature, but will take, um, you know, blood pressure and respiratory, uh, you know, measurements and blood oxygen levels, etc., which is a much more 
a significant test to determine whether or not someone's sick. And this is the future, he believes. You'll have to walk through one of these things. You walk through a metal detector anyway, and it will act as a metal detector as well. And if you don't pass, they'll refund your tickets and tell you to get the hell out. You won't be able to go into the stadium. Anyway, um, that's one of the reasons I ended up having a conversation with him because he's been a listener um, of, of the shows over the years. But he's an attorney, Tommy, who had worked with Williams and Connolly and was involved in a lot of different interesting sports-related stories during his professional life, two of which I'm going to share with you real quickly because I think you'll find them interesting. The first deals with Mark Mosley. Mark Mosley in 1982, if you recall, set the record for consecutive field goals in a season. Do you remember that? Yes. You do remember it? Or are you just saying you remember yes. it? Yes. No, I remember it. I remember yeah. 82. So, Absolutely. So he set the, 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 the mark for consecutive uh, field goals in 1982, breaking Garo Yepremian's record at the time, which was 20 field goals in a row. And during that strike-shortened season of 1982, uh, Mosley broke the record. He broke the record in a famous game that year. It was the snow game against the Giants at RFK Stadium, which clinched the playoff berth for the Redskins in that nine-game strike-shortened season. Anyway, Mosley contended that he broke... Mosley had a a clause in his contract that said if he set the mark for consecutive field goals, he would get a $5,000 bonus. Think about this, by the way, $5,000. Like, it's just, (laughs) it's so little. He would get a $5,000 bonus if he set the all-time field goal consecutive mark. So when he set the mark, he was due $5,000. But then he claimed that he set a second mark when he broke his own record by kicking his 22nd consecutive field goal which should have equated to an additional $5,000 bonus. And then when he kicked his 23rd consecutive kick that year, which is where the streak ended, that he was due another $5,000. Well, Redskins' ownership lost their minds and said, no, 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 no. And basically, this guy Howard Gutman was a part of representing the team um, and saying this isn't going to happen, and they were so angry that they basically spent five times what they would have spent in just paying him $15,000 in legal fees to win the case against Mosley. You know, he has a point, doesn't he? Apparently not. Um, among the witnesses for Mosley were Bobby Bethard, who was working for the organization, George Blanda, uh, who was considered to be the expert authority on this. Blanda, even in 1982, was still a revered former player. And George Blanda came in as a witness on behalf of Mosley. That's so great. Yeah, so that was one story he told. And then he told another story, and I think I'll get this one right. Um, uh, he was involved with the Colts in trying to move the Ursay, with Ursay in trying to move the Colts out of Baltimore. Ursay had decided earlier the year before in, in late 83 that he was moving. And he went to his lawyers, which Howard was one of uh, of the lawyers, and said, "Am I able to do this?" 
and I'm going to net it out for you. Basically, um, they made the case that it isn't just paying your leases off, which he was willing to do, that there was a much greater argument that Baltimore could make, the state of Maryland could make, that you, the 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 lost value to the city and to the state with the team leaving was more than just the lease payments that he owed on facilities, stadium, etc. And they actually gave him the advice that they didn't think that he could just leave and pay the leases. So then they said, and Howard uh, Howard said, I don't know if I'm totally proud of this moment, but he said, I came up with essentially the way for Ursay to do it, which was to pack up on Christmas Eve when no one was paying attention and no one would be able to come in until two days later to do anything about it and move across state lines. And once you were across state lines, there was little that they could do about it at that point in stopping you from leaving. Now, they didn't move on Christmas Eve, as you recall. They ended up moving in March, but they did so in a very secretive way. The Mayflower trucks that pulled up to move the the Colts out of their facilities in Baltimore weren't even told where they were moving to. They were just told to show up, pack up, and then they would get directions on where to go because no one could know where they were moving. And so on that fateful late snowy night in Baltimore in late March of 1984, they got out of of Dodge, crossed state lines, and they were clear. The reason they didn't move on Christmas Eve, which was the original recommendation, was because Ursay hadn't cut a deal yet with Indianapolis. He was still, it was still between Indianapolis and Phoenix for the two cities that Baltimore was going to move to. So that's why they couldn't move. I said to Howard, I go, well, you could have moved and you could have gotten across state lines and then just figured it out from there. And he said, well, what we were going to do, drive around the Midwest in those Mayflower trucks until they had a deal? And I said, well, it seemed to me that that would have been the perfect time to move out. But they ended up getting out on March 28th uh, anyway. But they basically got out of Dodge and avoided what would have been an injunction to force them to stay. You know, based on uh, it being, um, you know, much more injurious, if you will, to the state and to the city with the team leaving than just the loss of a lease payment, which the, the, the Colts were willing to pay off anyway. I just thought those were two interesting stories that he told from his earlier, you know, lawyer days at Williams and Connolly. Well, uh, let me give you two reactions to those. Okay. First of all, the name Gutman, all of a sudden it just popped into my head. That's the name of Sidney Greenstreet's character in the Maltese Falcon. Okay. He's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Gutman. Yeah. You know, a movie I've watched, I don't know, probably uh, 2,000 times or something like that. Uh, the Did other you go thing watch is, The Master again just quickly before I forget? No, I, no, I did okay. not. I did, I did not, because I'm kind of caught up in Yellowstone right now. Got it. Uh, so, so I didn't watch it. But the other thing is, and this is a little bit problematic here for your Mr. Gutman. Well, not now. I mean, who cares now? You know, but I don't think the city of Baltimore and Baltimore fans and Oriole fans knew 
that Barbara Ursay's lawyer was Williamson Conley. Edward Bennett Williams owned the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah. Okay? Right. And you mean to tell me that while Edward Bennett Williams owns the Orioles and is catering to Baltimore fans in baseball, his law firm is helping the football owners move <laughs> out guess, of town? I guess so. That, that's a bit, that would have been <clears throat> a bit problematic if it came out in 1983. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. I didn't even think about that Tommy but that's so true. A little bit. When when did Williams buy the Orioles? In, I think it was 70, 77 or 79. Okay. Might have been 79 that was the year that they went to uh, or it might have been 77. He bought them from Hofburger. Mm-hmm. By the way, the learners were bidders for that team back then uh, before w- Williams wound up buying them. Would they have, uh, would they have actually considered moving him to D.C.? I don't know. I don't know. You know, everyone thought Edward Bennett Williams was going to do it. Right. I remember uh, that. Right. But, event, you know, ultimately he did not. And uh, he was the driving force behind getting Camden Yards built, along with Larry Lachino, who worked for him Yeah. at, at Williams and Conley. You know, um, it's actually... Like I do, I I kind of remember when Edward Bennett Williams, who was obviously the owner of the Redskins, and then bought the Orioles, and then Jack Kent Cooke took over the majority ownership of the Redskins. I do remember vaguely the conversation about the Orioles moving to D.C. But you know what, Tommy? They shouldn't have moved to D.C. They they, they, it, they were much better off staying in Baltimore because they captured the D.C. market anyway. And if they had moved out of Baltimore, they would have never... Well, I don't know. The, the Orioles were such a treasure of that city. Um, that would have really been ugly between the yeah. two cities. When you think about it, can you imagine if the Orioles had moved to D.C.? I mean, how how hated Edward Bennett Williams would have been. Yeah. I mean, remember, Edward Bennett Williams took brought the World Series trophy down to Duke Zebra. Right. And sat it there for a few days. The 83. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but ultimately, EBW did the, you know, if you could ask me, uh, I wasn't covering sports then. I didn't start covering sports in Washington until 92. Uh, if I could go back in time and, and, and talk to one guy uh, connected with Washington, uh, it would be Edward Bennett Williams. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I just wish I had a chance. I've gotten to know people who have been close to him, who have known him, who worked with him. Uh, and I just wish I, I had had the uh, pleasure of knowing Edward Bennett Williams. What a I, remarkable life. Uh, remarkable life. Um, a tough, tough guy. Um, Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer. Yeah, and um, and some of the stories about, you know, his purchase of the Redskins and then, you know, bringing in Cook, like some of those stories we could spend, you know, two hours doing a show on and having yeah. people on to talk about it. Um, remember a few years ago I had that uh, book in my possession that had a lot of information that... Um, you mean Hail Victory, the oral history no, of the I Washington Redskins? I didn't have Hail Victory. That book? No, I didn't. Um, but that's a pretty good book from what I've heard. Yeah. You, you know, know, there's lots of stuff in there about George Preston Marshall 
It turns out there's not lots of stuff anyplace else now well, about Tour Express and Martin. Well, part of you know the whole story was how Edward Bennett Williams, who I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was basically George Preston Marshall's lawyer. You know, when when Preston Marshall owned the Redskins, and then it was the whole process by which the team never made it to any of Preston Marshall's kids. Um, there's a whole story right. there, and I can't remember the details, but it's fascinating on how that all worked. And then um, uh, he bought, he purchased the Redskins in when was it? It was the late '60s, early '70s, right? Who um, I, I, Edward ABW? I think took over. He took over the operations 60s. in the early '60s, but when did he end up owning? A majority stake. Uh, I don't maybe think he, he ever owned a majority. You're right. You're stake. right. He didn't. That's true. It was always a minority yeah. interest. That's right. Yeah. That's but right. He was the managing general partner. I think. Oh really? You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think so. I mean, he was. Well, I mean, he, he was, was the, the one that hired. Guy. He was the the one that hired George Allen. And he was the one that hired Lombardi. Right. Um, so, remember, yeah. remember too, Tommy. Um, I think this is part of all the president's men. Wasn't Edward Bennett Williams at one point thought to be a possibility for Deep Throat? He may. He, I, I don't know because he was the post lawyer. Yeah. Then, so I don't know how he could. I mean, he was such a fixer in D.C. I, mean, I doubt. I doubt there's not much that they knew that he didn't know what was going on. But I would have think that Nixon would have considered, and the Nixon White House, would have considered EBW an enemy of the state. Yeah. So to speak. Uh, I'm looking, you know? I'm, I just Googled it to see if I could find anything on that, because I may have remembered that incorrectly. Uh, whatever. Whatever. We know that Mark Felt was deep throat. <clears throat> um, many years, many years after the fact. After, of course, uh, he had passed away. And, uh, you know, whenever that was, 10, 15 years ago, and Bob Woodward was able to tell us all who uh, Deep Throat was. Right. Kept that secret You know, I, when I taught journalism, journalism writing classes, I don't teach that anymore. I teach a business of sports media course now. But I'd always take one class and show all the president's men to, 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 the, <laughs> uh, to the group. Because, and, and I'd say to them, you see this guy? This attorney general, he went to jail. You <laughs> see this guy, chief uh, of staff for the White House, he went to jail. I point to all these people and say they all went to jail. I mean, which is which most students found stunning. I mean, they had no idea. Yeah, well, courtesy of the the summer of of 1974 and Irvin and all of them on that uh, yeah. on the Watergate. Um, investigation committee wow i mean it's it is it's such a great you know one of the every time that movie's on i like to watch it because the shots of washington georgetown of them driving in in cars throughout town god the city looked it's totally different back then and it was yes it did yeah it, it was it was a much That's different before my city time. but That's i before but, my time i got here in 83 there's a shot of them driving down M Street in Georgetown in that movie, and the truth is, you know, they're they're passing by the intersection of Wisconsin and M in Georgetown, and there isn't that much that looks that different today. Um, but uh, yeah, 
Yeah, a uh, lot of people. Um, courtesy of, of John Dean's help, a lot of people went yeah. to jail and the president was forced to resign. Um, all right, a uh, quick word about Hydrant. We'll get to some uh, sports-related stuff here. Uh, top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or a meditation. But not everybody's got the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Did you know that 75% of us walking around everyday life are chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, poor focus. It doesn't have to be that way. If you want to kick the coffee habit, which would be very difficult for me, uh, admittedly, but you're worried about your energy levels, to avoid the morning sluggishness in that midday slump, you need to make sure you are hydrated. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water. It makes hydrating your body easy and delicious. Rapid hydration through Hydrant gives you the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. Hydrant's backed by research. The formula formula was developed by Oxford scientists. There's no synthetic coloring. There are no artificial sweeteners. The formula's vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. It starts at a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, I want you to go to drinkhydrant.com slash Sheehan. That's my promo code. Drinkhydrant, H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, for 25% off your first order. Um. Where do we start? The RG3... Well, st- let me, wait a minute. Before we get started, just yep. two more housekeeping things real quick. Okay. First, first of all, uh, I got this uh, tweet the other day from Stephen B. Uh, that said, listening to Kevin C. and D.C. and Tom Lavero on the latest podcast. And who do I see taking a walk in one of the Frederick neighborhoods? <laughs> the one and only Mr. Lavero. Wow. Getting his daily steps in. What a thrill. <laughs> and you know when, when and when I walk, I mean I don't like to talk to anybody. You know I I got my headphones on. I'm listening to music. I'm smoking a cigar. Uh, I mean I'm there for business. I'm not there for pleasure. Yeah, well you're you're not a you're a difficult guy when you're focused um, to, to to break that concentration level. That's pretty funny. Um, it was a few years ago. I don't remember what the interview was. But I remember specifically where I was. I had pulled up into the Safeway parking lot near my house, parked my car. I had my radio on listening to 980, and the car next to me had uh, windows down. It was obviously during the summer. And I could hear our station uh, because it almost synced up in stereo. And it was Zabe's show, and he was playing an interview from my show with Cooley. He was replaying an interview with the show, and I don't even remember what the interview was. I can't remember, but they were replaying it. And I'm sitting there, and the guy looks over at me, and he sees me, and his eyes light up, and he goes, oh my God, I'm listening to you right now. And I was just so thrilled that he recognized me, which, you know, as as radio people, we both know this, 
occasionally we get recognized. Uh, more often than not, someone might recognize the voice. But we yes. live, you know, thankfully, at least as far as I'm concerned, in relative anonymity, thank God. Not that we would be massively popular or noticeable anyway out there, but I do remember that, which is sort of equivalent to what just happened with you. Yeah. Look, I, I like me, like I said, not when I'm walking necessarily, but I generally yeah. like it when people come up to me and, and, and recognize me. And tell me they listen to me and all that. I, do I always too. appreciate that. That never gets old. I totally agree. It's so the other nice thing is, when that happens. Yes. The other thing is, another benefit of Facebook is uh, a long time ago, I had made a friend request to this person, probably years ago, maybe, uh, because his name came up somehow on Facebook. And I said, oh, that, I thought that'd be pretty cool. So finally, he friended me back, Chuck Foreman. The Vikings, Chuck Foreman. The, the Vikings, Chuck Foreman, the, the former running back who who is from Frederick, Maryland. I might point out. I didn't. Know uh, that. Yeah, and uh, he friended me back. Uh, now, the, 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 again, what are the professionally? One of the values of Facebook is I can't tell you how many times I needed to get in touch with somebody, and I found out they had a Facebook page, and I would message them, right. and they would get back to me. It happens a lot o- over the years. Yeah, uh, I've been able to get with a lot of... Now, I don't know if I ever want to talk to Chuck Foreman, but I remember growing up watching Chuck oh, Foreman. he was great. He was one of the elite running backs of the 70s. Uh, there, there were so many of them back then. It was a running back era, and uh, he was one of the best. Two things about Chuck Foreman I remember. Number one was him getting hit in the eye with a snowball in a game in Buffalo, which um, impaired his vision permanently, I believe. Am I right about that? I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. I don't recall that. Number two is that Chuck Foreman and those Viking teams of the 70s became, at least based on my memory and my lifetime of watching football, the first team to really use running backs as pass receivers. Chuck Foreman uh, led the league in receptions in 1975 with 73 receptions in that season um, as a running back. And so prior to then, you threw to wide receivers and tight ends. You really didn't throw or make the running backs a big part of your pass offense. You may um, correct me on this. But I'm pretty sure that Chuck Foreman and those Viking teams with Fran Tarkington of the 70s were the first to really throw to the back. Do you remember that? I don't recall. You may be right. I'm trying to think back to some of the great teams, uh, you know, like in the early 70s or the late 60s. And I don't recall a lot of teams that that threw to their backs that much. I'm looking through past reception leaders um, going back, and I'm, I'm going to be able to correct myself immediately because Lydell Mitchell was the leading receiver in 1974 in Baltimore. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So Burt Jones and Lydell Another Mitchell. Another great running back. Yeah, Lydell Mitchell was a great uh, running back, Penn State. Um, he had 72 receptions the year before. Chuck Foreman was eighth. So you had, and I'm looking at the top 10, that was it, just two running backs. Actually, Terry Metcalf was in the top 10, too. And I do remember the Cardinals, um, you know, under Don Coriel, because Coriel coached those early to mid-70s Cardinals teams. 
Coriel throwing to the backs too. But um, in 1973, Harold Carmichael, Charlie Taylor were your top two receivers. Now, Ed Podolak's on this top ten list, but everybody else is a wide receiver. 1972, Harold Jackson, Fred Bolitnikoff, Chip Myers was a wide receiver in Cincinnati. All all uh, wide receivers or tight ends um, until you get to Art Malone at number eight, who was a fullback in Atlanta. I think he was Benny Malone's brother. Benny Malone eventually became a Redskins running back. In 1971, Tommy, um, well, Frenchie Fuqua was in the top six in receptions. But okay. anyway, um, mostly receivers and tight ends before Lydell Mitchell in 74, who led the league, and then Chuck Foreman led the league uh, in 75. Mitchell was second in receptions in 75. God, Lydell Mitchell was really good. Yes, what? he was. And those, those Colt teams were part of those AFL teams that kept banging their heads against the Steelers. And the Raiders. And, uh, and the Raiders. Uh, the Patriots of the 70s, other Chuck Fairbanks and Steve Grogan. Steve Grogan, yeah. Very good team. Very, very good, good teams. team. That, that, a double-digit winning team uh, for a few years that just couldn't get past the Steelers or the Raiders. And the Dolphins, of course. I mean, And the Dolphins, yeah, the, the early the, part of the decade. Yeah, the, the AFC of the 70s was dominated by the Dolphins, Steelers, and Raiders. Now, the Steelers ended up being the team of the decade, but the Dolphins went to three consecutive Super Bowls in 71, 72, and 73, those three seasons, and won two of them against the Redskins and the Vikings. And uh, the Raiders... Only won one Super Bowl that decade, but they were constantly in AFC Championship games against Pittsburgh. And you're right, Tommy, those Colt teams with Birch Jones and, and Lydell Mitchell and Roger Carr and Dowdy and good defenses, um, Ted Marchabroda coaching those teams, right? I think it was Ted Marchabroda. Yeah, yeah with um, Ted Marchabroda, you had Joe Ehrman and John Dutton. Yeah, John Dutton. Defensive tackle. Right. Yeah. Uh, they were constantly knocking on the door, but losing. You know, they lost to Pittsburgh at home that when that uh, that small aircraft, right when the stadium emptied, crashed in the upper deck of Memorial Stadium. They lost in that famous 37-31 overtime game on Christmas Eve '77 to the Raiders. Um, they lost, I think one of their losses was to the Dolphins in the AFC Championship game in the early 70s, but that wouldn't have been Burt Jones. That may have still been Earl Morrill or, uh, or Johnny U. God, Burt, I told you the story about sitting on a flight with Burt Jones, right? I don't see how you couldn't have. I don't remember it. Of course. I, I know. mean, he was one of my, fa- he was one I of know. my favorite quarterbacks. I know I told you the story because I remember you being like, you know, Burt Jones was one of my favorites. This is... Early to mid-90s, maybe late-90s, I had a flight to New Orleans on the plane. I sit down. I'm sitting there reading the paper or whatever, and then somebody sits down next to me, and, you know, five minutes later I look up, and it's Burt Jones. <laughs> and I said I said to him, I said, Burt Jones? And he said, yeah. Like, I think he was surprised that anybody would recognize him, you know, basically 20 years after he played. Um, we ended up having the nicest conversation. I was going through all the games I remembered. They played the Redskins back-to-back years, Tommy, on Monday Night Football in 77 and 78. 
So these were st- this was a George Allen team the final year and a Jack Pardee coach team. Both of the games were in Memorial Stadium. You know, back then there was no rhyme nor reason to how you played AFC opponents. You know, um, although now I'm wondering, did the Redskins just have a locked-in thing with the Colts every year? Is that possible? Is that why they is? Let me just go back. Like in '76, did they play the the Colts? Um, It's not showing up here. Uh, I don't know if they did or didn't. Anyway, '77, '78, they played the Colts on Monday Night Football. In '77, it was a driving rainstorm at Memorial Stadium, and the Redskins lost ten to three. It was a crushing loss. The Redskins didn't go to the playoffs that year. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Burt Jones was the quarterback in that game, but the famous Burt Jones game, one of the most famous games of his career came the following year on a Monday night football, um, game at Memorial stadium against the, uh, against the Redskins, right? 78, maybe it was 79, no 78. Um, and Burt Jones Rallied the Colts back with t- with two second half touchdown passes to Roger Carr. Uh, he had basically a separated was playing with a separated shoulder. He was hurt, and he threw three touchdowns. I think it was three or four touchdowns. And I remember talking to him talking to him about that game, and he said that's that's right up there with the most memorable games of my career. Because, you know, the Redskins, even though they weren't, you know, a division or a conference rival, it was a big game and it was Monday night football. And, you know, I, I, I let us back, um, to, uh, to, to a win in that game. You know, I don't think I, and one of the things I liked about him, uh, I don't think I ever saw a quarterback berate his teammates publicly as much as Burt Jones would. Oh, really? For there, there for everybody to see on TV, and they all cowered in fear of him. He must have been a tough guy because he didn't get any pushback from teammates, and he would ream them out where, for everybody to see if they weren't doing what what he thought they should be doing. I Bert Jones. That's one of the things I remember distinctly about Bert Jones. Very demonstrative in in his public uh, criticism uh, or dressing down of teammates. Interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. By the way, the Redskins didn't play the Colts every year, but they did play them back-to-back in 77 and 78. I've watched this game. It's available on YouTube. Um, it starts with Howard Cosell interviewing Burt Jones and Billy Kilmer on the field before the game, and then they go into you know um, the Monday night football theme uh, right after that. So uh, anyway, uh, how did we get on this? Oh, Burt Jones uh, was oh, on a flight with me uh, to New Orleans. He was right. going home because he's from New Orleans. Right. I mentioned Chuck Foreman. That's how this all started. Oh, that's how that's, this all started. Okay. Um, let's start with Jack Del Rio um, and what he did on Twitter the other night. And I didn't do the show yesterday, so I didn't have a chance to weigh in on this. And I'm sure you followed this as well. Um, Jack Del Rio, um, for those that missed it and are hearing about it for the first time, on Tuesday night, uh, you know, really got active on Twitter, which he has been very active on Twitter. It was only, you know, a couple of months ago on the radio show. I was like, hey, Jack, you may want to just tone it down a little bit on Twitter because, Tommy, I don't know if you re- recall this, but in April, um, so about two and a half months ago, it was early April, 
he got duped um, by yes. by a parody site called the Babylon Bee, um, a fake site, you know, a, a comedy site, basically, um, because they, they put this fake story out there that was titled, Liberal Treated with Hydroxychloroquine Hopes He Still Dies of COVID-19 <laughs> to Prove That Trump is Stupid. And Jack Del Rio retweeted that and wrote pure ignorance. And, of course, people lit him up with, dude, it isn't real. Uh, He never responded to that. So the other night, um, he was really active on Twitter again. This is the Redskins' new defensive coordinator. You know, coming into an organization that's preaching culture change and really making a lot of moves uh, that, that, that speak to the times, Tommy, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. Absolutely. It's, so talk about talk about the word woke. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden. Yes. You know, if, yeah, if you wanted to change the name of the Redskins, woke yeah. would be a good name change. Well, they, right now they're keeping their regular name. Um, I know. But anyway, Del Rio basically revealed himself to be quite the conservative pro Donald Trump supporter. And let me explain a few of the reasons why. Well, first of all, he got duped by another fake tweet. Now, have you been fake? Have you been duped by a fake tweet before and responded to something or retweeted something that you got wrong? I I think I did it once several years ago. Well, I look as much as I force myself into remembering to always double check Mm -hmm. like an Adam Schefter tweet or uh, right. a Buster Olney tweet, <laughs> right. just to make sure it, it is exactly them and not just one letter off or one syllable off. Or Once in a while, I'll make the mistake of retweeting something from, from somebody who's reporting news, legitimate news, uh, and it'll be from a fake website or a fake, a fake Twitter name. But I, I don't think I've ever actually retweeted a whole fake story have you ever when you've done that have you just apologized for it or have you just deleted it oh i've i've done both i deleted and apologized okay so let that brings us to jack del rio on tuesday night the new redskins defensive coordinator so there was this fake tweet that um, made the rounds as if it had come from alexandria ocasio-cortez's account aoc's account um it read as follows It's vital that governors maintain restrictions on businesses until after the November elections because economic recovery will help Trump be reelected. A few businesses, a few business closures or job losses is a small price to pay to be free from his presidency. Hashtag keep us closed. So somebody put that out on Monday and they dated it like in May. Now, I know a lot of people that would have read that and would have legitimately thought that it was real coming from that particular source, AOC. But to your point, um, old Jack Del Rio, our defensive coordinator, he may be able to size up an offense, Tommy, but he can't size up a fake tweet at this point. No, he he can't. He retweeted it and wrote, wow, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point, proof, dot, dot, dot. Come on, AOC. And he got taken to the woodshed on this. 
So that started a night of him on Twitter, which included him retweeting a, a Candace Owens video. If you don't know who Candace Owens is, she's a super conservative, Trump-supporting black female um, uh, pundit. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you've... All you got to do is is Google Candace Owens to find out about her. She's got a massive following, but obviously is a highly controversial figure. Um, he retweeted uh, one of her tweets and videos. He then liked the following two tweets, one of which was a Candace Owens tweet that read as follows. I'm just amazed that so many people actually believe that someone left a noose in Bubba Smollett's NASCAR garage. She referred to him as Bubba Smollett. Um, I mean, really, people, it's 2020, folks. Anytime someone claims an old-fashioned noose was used, there's a 99.9999% chance it's a hoax. Um, That was tweeted out by Candace Owens on June 23rd, and Jack Del Rio on Tuesday night liked that tweet. He also liked one of Charlie Kirk's tweets. If you don't know who Charlie Kirk is, another major super conservative pundit, he tweeted out, someone who tries to topple a monument to a U.S. president is not a protester. They're a rioter and a criminal. Time to start quickly arresting and, and indicting the domestic terrorists who are doing damage to America. Then <clears throat> he got a tweet, which has now been deleted. Um, actually, it's back up. It was deleted this morning. It's back up. He got a tweet that said, just found out Coach Del Rio is a Trump supporter. Wish these old racists would stay off Twitter. Del Rio retweeted it and wrote, I'm 100% for America. If you're not, you can kiss my ass. And it was actually A with dollar sign, dollar sign in, uh, in caps. Well, I guess the dollar sign wouldn't technically be a cap, but the A is in caps. So that's the night he had on Tuesday night. Uh, you can start with your reaction, and then I'll give you mine. Well, this is what I brought up earlier to you. Now, this is more of a coach-player thing than a player-player thing. But I think NFL locker rooms, uh, where politics, you know, everyone has sort of like, not necessarily respected, but built up their own personal walls about their own politics inside a locker room. Right. You know, and put them aside for the the uh, team business, you know, I think that's going to be different come September and October, particularly fueled with what, what will be a very volatile election and a very emotional election. And given what we've been through in the past couple of months uh, and the message that silence is no longer an option, I think there's going to be some more NFL players than ever that are going to have be outspoken about their positions inside that room, and it may conflict with people. And, they may, and, and, you know, there's this feeling right now, if you're not with us, then you're part of the problem. Well, of course there's, <clears throat> there's that feeling right now. There is definitely, um, as we've discussed, um, you know, a, a, an effort to eradicate free speech and free alternative opinion speech in particular in this country right now. Um, something that we've spent time talking about before in previous podcasts. We don't need to go there now. I know you've said that, and I didn't disagree with it. 
Um, I, in fact, I could totally see it becoming much more of an issue now than maybe it's ever been in the past, even going back to, as we discussed, I think the other day, you know, the 1968 election between Humphrey and Nixon, you know, it was just a different environment uh, back then. But uh, to me, it's much, it's even more potentially damaging or influencing on a locker room with a coach who's being asked to lead and lead a a locker room. I can't go down the list of defensive players or offensive players. It really doesn't matter. The players in the locker room, I don't know what their politics are, but I would guess that the majority are very much involved in what has been going on now, will vote for Biden and are anti-Trump. And, and many of which in the locker room, black and white, by the way, who will believe that if you are a pro-Trump, you're a racist. You know, that there's something bad about you. That, um, that, I think that will be the prevailing notion. It will be the majority. Well, you agree with me. We can't, we can't sit here and say every one of his players are going to disagree with him because we don't know that. But the no, we don't know but, that. But the majority but, but, will. But, we, can, we can guess on that. Yes. Yes, I would agree with that. But, uh, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you're right. For a coach, could be very divisive inside that locker room. I mean, to the point where, uh, let's say you've got the defensive players who, who, who like Jack Del Rio, no matter what his politics, and you've got offensive players, you know, who never spend any time with Del Rio, who are just totally offended by what he said and, 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 and what he's done on social media. You could devise defense versus offense. I mean, it could, it could for a coach, for uh, the defense coordinator, arguably the second. Uh, right? Wouldn't you say Del Rio is second in command behind Ron Rivera? Yeah, definitely on the yeah. coaching staff for sure. Yeah, it's not Scott I mean, Turner. No, no, he's not. He's not the son of a coach. Uh, you know, getting his first real gig. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this could this could be very volatile. And I'd be shocked if you see anything else from Jack Del Rio politically on social media as long as he's with this team. Okay, I want to get to that in a moment. But, but um, I, we, we've talked about going back to Kaepernick. You know, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of consequence. I think everybody understands that. You know, you have the right to say what you want. And if he's really passionate about his politics and he's not concerned about the consequence, more power to him. He has that right. But the consequence in his environment right now um, is what we're discussing here in the moment. Um, Tom thinks it could be very divisive in the locker room. I would not discount that as a possibility. I also wouldn't discount the possibility that you get to training camp and it's all about football and that he's an excellent football coach, which everybody knows. No one's ever said anything other than Jack Del Rio is a really good defensive coach, you know, at the very least. Um, But he was against players kneeling back in 2017, even though he gave in and, you know, he, he made it very clear he was against it, but he did give in and allow players, especially Marshawn Lynch, who had been sitting for the anthem for years, and no one even really knew it or said anything about it. Um, but uh, I, before we even get to a locker room situation, you just, you know, talked about you doubt if you'll ever see anything more political 
from Jack Del Rio on his Twitter account. First of all, he has yet to delete the retweet of AOC's tweet. He's he's not apologized for anything. He hasn't made a statement. I can't imagine, Tommy, and some will disagree because they'll say, well, that's his, his politics line up with Snyder's politics. It doesn't matter. Snyder is in a business right now. Snyder wants a football team, wants a culture change, and wants this Ron Rivera thing to work out. I can't imagine he's thrilled, and I cannot imagine that, that Ron Rivera is thrilled, that Jack Del Rio, a new prominent voice in an organization that needs to change its culture, is you know taking his politics public. Especially since Ron Rivera has been so open right. and up, up front and, and trying to lead the organization in step with, with the movement that we're seeing in the country. The black, I mean, they, Ron Rivera uh, basically and the Redskins organization has embraced the Black Lives Matter movement. Oh, they've created uh, a commission, a council, yes. to, you know, yes. which, which I, I doubt that Jack Del Rio is going to be a part of. Uh, yes. At this point, and and look, you're at the point now where news organizations are writing stories about your social media. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. When when people yeah. are writing stories about what you post on social media, and you're a defensive coordinator on a football team, you've got a big problem. Yeah, but nothing's been done so far about that problem. Are they hoping it'll go away? Because if they're hoping it'll go away with response to public reaction, you know, then we get to the time where his players are together with him. Does he have to address his players? You know, and on some level, you know, I do believe he should be who he is. And he should say, I have the right to my beliefs. I have a right to vote for who I want to vote for. I have the right to believe in what I want to believe. And so do you. And I support that right. I support your right to believe and vote for whom uh, you want to vote for. And I'd ask that you support mine. Or does it have to go further where he has to, you know, really explain and and justify and rationalize or backtrack, uh, which I don't see him doing personally? Well, here's the thing. What are the Redskins going to do at this point? Are they going to fire him before the season even starts? No. They're not going to do that. Okay, he probably has a multi-year contract. He's probably getting paid a decent amount of money. And imagine there's a town in Pennsylvania not far from where I, I lived called Centralia. Okay, That's John Riggins' hometown in Kansas. In Kansas. Well, in Centralia, Pennsylvania, uh, it was mine country. And there was a mine fire that was burning under the town that made the town toxic. And every and they couldn't put it out, and everybody had to move out, and the whole town was abandoned. And now the state has blocked it off. So because there were a lot of like onlookers and and tourists who would go take a look at this ghost town, uh, because the mine fire is still burning underneath the town. You can still see smoke coming up uh, through the streets and stuff. Well, the Redskins have been a mine fire for for years. And Ron Rivera has moved in, and uh, he's expected to put the mine fires out. And you can't have, when you're trying to do this, you can't, be, you can't get back to, to, to a situation like this. This is like a mine fire all of a sudden blowing right up again. It's so I mean, Redskins. Yes. 
This is what I mean. I mean, the Redskins, they're not going to fire him because people would say, oh, my God, so much for culture change. They're firing their defensive coordinator for being on social media before the season even started. But, and, and you're right, there's one scenario where, you know, he speaks to the team, this gets resolved for football's sake, and everyone is on the same football page. But the other scenario is it becomes an issue as they gather to play football uh, over the course of a year and comes to a very ugly situation inside the locker room or inside the building at some point. There are going to be players who are going to be angry at some point with Jack Del Rio over football matters. And all of a sudden it's going to pop in their head, this bigot doesn't like me. This guy's a bigot. And he's out to get me. Yeah. Uh, in this environment, that's definitely in play. I, you know, going back to player arguments versus a coach, you know, leaders, leaders have to be empathetic. Um, they, the, you expect, you know, employees to have disagreements or to even have, you know, sketchy uh, morals. But when you're asked to be a leader like he is as a coach, people in charge can't have the perception of having hate, you know, in their heart. And I'm not suggesting that he does. Please don't get me wrong. I support his First Amendment right. Now, 2020, there's a a certain feeling that people are not going to give in on, and that is if you vote for Trump, you're voting for hate. And as a leader in an organization and as a coach, Tommy, it's going to be a very difficult position given his constituency, if you will, the players that he's being asked to lead to get that to get past that. I, I don't know. I don't know what'll happen with it. I do think netting it out from my perspective, it was dumb. Like you're in a new organization, know a little bit about the organization you're in and the trouble that they have had and the culture you're entering, and you want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Don't be tone deaf to the times because there's a certain level of his profile publicly that speaks to a tone deafness to what's going on right now. You know, he's entitled to free speech. He's entitled to his opinion. He's not entitled to freedom of consequence. Um, And the consequence is, you know, eight out of ten people responding, many of whom are Redskin fans, were outraged and disappointed. Yes, I think you're right. Again, you know, having a perception of the situation you're in, of all teams, if you don't understand what, what, what the Redskins need to do here, in order to be successful, not just, uh, not just football talent-wise, not just coaching-wise, but culture-wise, then, you, then you're not the right guy for the job, actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, net it out. Will anything happen? I think something will happen. I don't, I don't know if it, how dramatic it'll be. I think something will happen. Look, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, I'm the house. And I'm betting on the aura of self-destruction every time, okay? Every time, until proven otherwise, you know? You don't beat the champ. You're not the champ until you beat the champ. And right now, the Redskins are the champions of the aura of self-destruction. 
Um, and, and the whole culture change right now is wishful thinking at this point. I am convinced that he has been spoken to by at least Ron Rivera, who is, by the way, the head of the organization now. He's running this organization. I would bet you Ron had a little conversation with Jack that said, Hey, Jack, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the last month or the last three or four weeks, um, but these comments don't help us. And right now we hired you to help us, not hurt us. I don't, you know, I don't have any problem with your beliefs. Um, expressing them right now is a problem for your employer and a problem for me who swore by you in hiring you. Yeah. Now, you know, Jack may not be the smartest pencil in the box. Uh, I, I responded to something he tweeted, you know, throughout all this, uh, in the middle of all this. It was pretty nondescript. Uh, it was, this was about, uh, you know, starting the NFL season, you know, with coronavirus and all that. And Jack uh, Del Rio tweeted, I think most players understand the risk of playing the game of football. The priority is not trying to be perfectly safe. If so, perhaps you should never drive your car. So I, re- I retweeted it and keep axes out of the locker room. Was it in Oakland? It was in, in Jacksonville. Oh, Jacksonville. He, he brought an axe right. into the locker room as some kind of symbolic, I don't know, chopping wood kind of, of thing. And uh, I guess a rookie punter was playing with it and chopped off a piece of their leg. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's get to Robert Griffin III. Uh, quick mention that you can listen to the radio show, 6 to 9 a.m. on the Team 980 app, the team 980com or on 980 or in 95.9 FM if you're in D.C. and you're driving around. Many more people now are out and about in the mornings, which is uh, good to see. Um, before, real quickly, we get to, to, to RG3, I wanted to read this quote from Ezekiel Elliott. You know, he tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, the NFL, by the way, canceled the Hall of Fame game between the Cowboys and the Steelers on August 6th, and they've canceled the enshrinement uh, activities for the Hall of Fame as well. That could be the beginning here um, of something. But uh, Ezekiel Elliott um, in Dallas uh, uh, tested positive. He said he's feeling better. Uh, You know, he had some shortness of breath, but he's feeling much better and he thinks he's going to be better. But he had a couple of quotes that I wanted to read to you because this really does um, speak to a lot of what you've been talking about over the last month, and that is how the players are going to feel about this. He said, quote, I just feel like there's a lot of moving parts that have to be figured out. I just don't know how they can keep the players healthy. you got to put the health of the players first. And it's not even so much I would say the players' health because I've got, I, I got corona. It really didn't affect me much. But a lot of people have kids. They may have kids with asthma. They may have newborn babies. Their parents or grandparents may live with them. We have to find ways to make sure that players and their families and the coaches also and their families aren't put at risk, closed quote. There's no, there's no real way to, to, to do this. There's no real way to, to make everybody safe. It's, it's a crapshoot. I told CJ this morning, if you took a poll twice a week 
on whether or not you think sports are going to return. Take the NFL, whether or not you think the NFL is going to start on time. And then a second question, whether or not you think the NFL will play a completed season, you know, a 16 game season through the Super Bowl. Right now, I think based on the increased uh, cases in COVID-19 and all of these players testing positive in all of these different sports, golf, the NBA, et cetera, you'd have 50% plus saying, not going to start on time, not going to finish a completed season. A month ago, I think you would have had 80% of the people say that they'll start on time and you'll have a completed season. You know, we could move forward three weeks and have medication or have a decreasing number of cases um, and feel good about it again. But right now, today, with the increasing cases nationwide, with the number of players that are getting it, I don't think the season will start on time, and I don't think they'll play a full season. Wow. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're wrong. I hope hope that's wrong, you know? I, I I hope that uh, I mean I'm hoping against hope, but time just seems to be moving without any real progress uh, that that we see. Uh, let me make this about me, uh, <laughs> like I usually do. Uh, we're moving ahead with our plans in the middle of August to go to Wildwood for a week. Right. I know to, I talked about this you have to go before. out to Spokane first. Uh, and and I'm not going. Liz is going to to, to do it. Oh, she uh, is. And, and, yeah. And well, that's a change. That's a change in plans. Yeah, yeah. Liz, Liz is going to do it and bring her back. But I'm trying to. Uh, I really am a guy who tries to prepare as much as I can for every scenario, you know, before I go into it. So uh, I'm trying to figure out the things I can do to reduce my my risk this week that we're going to be spending in a condo with my granddaughter from Washington State, my son uh, who from Baltimore, uh, my niece from Florida. Uh, and uh, I purchased one of those thermometers that, you know, you just touch on the forehead. I've got a blood ox meter to check your blood oxygen level because I've been told yeah. that that is a way to, to test. It's important. And and I'm going to have a – have you had a coronavirus test? I have not. I'm going to have one uh, about a week or so, about a week before we go. Uh, I can't force any, everybody else to have them. You know, I'm going to recommend it, but everyone's got to make their own decision. But I'm going to have the test, too, Just uh, which is no guarantee. I mean, you know, I mean, I could have the test, you know, not test positive for it, and then – all of a sudden get it the next day and not even know it. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, and, and again, I mean, this is a risk that I really don't have to take. I mean, I don't have to go. We don't have to go on this vacation. But it feels like uh, it just feels sort of surrendering by not going. I don't know why. I've been real cautious. I know uh, you have. I'm actually surprised uh, that you're moving forward with this vacation. I, I'm not. I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm, but I am surprised given how cautious um, and angst-ridden over this thing you've been since day one when you said, "Kevin, this thing's <laughs> gunning for me." <laughs> that was day one. That was Rudy Gobert plus one. 
I think that's how we should refer to it now. Rudy Gobert plus one. Rudy Gobert plus one. It was, this thing's coming for me, Kevin. And so, yeah, I'm surprised you're going to go through with this. I I am very happy, actually, even though I know it's going to be a pain in the ass for Liz. I think you getting onto a a cross-country flight um, in a confined airplane, w- I mean, you would have had to take, you know, multiple uh, anxiety meds just to make it through or just, you know, load it well, up on, on gotta, scotch. She's got to be at risk. She's got to be at risk, but, too. But it's not gunning for her like it's been gunning for you. Am she's I right or wrong? Maybe I'm wrong? Maybe I'm wrong about that. No, she's the same age. Yeah, but you've had it. You've had a bunch of stuff. What is this bunch of stuff? Well, you've had a lot of respiratory stuff. I had bronchitis. A lot you've uh, had bronchitis over the last no. few years. No, I've had allergy problems over the years. Mm-hmm. I don't, but as much as you want me to have <laughs> asthma, I don't have asthma. <laughs> well, you've had lung... You have lung- tried to talk it yeah. into existence. <laughs> you've had lung-related issues at times over the last yeah. couple of years. Well, would you get on a plane if you had to in cross-country? If I had to, yes, I would. Well, what, what makes you any better than me? I don't have... You, you I, have asthma. I, I have asthma for two weeks during the spring when the trees and the tree pollen is really high. That's it. I don't have asthma at any other point. I have, I have allergy-induced asthma for a week or two during the spring, and that's it. You have. You're the guy. You're the guy on pain meds, not me. Well, I mean, I would have been an mf'er if I hadn't have had the pain meds on Monday. I would have been a pain in the ass for everybody in my house. All right, let's get to this RG three stuff. All right, um, RG three. Okay. If you miss this, and I would urge everybody to go listen to it. John Kime did a really, really good job. Um, in interviewing Robert Griffin III for 45 minutes on his podcast. So same way you get our podcast, you can get John's podcast. You can also go to his Twitter page, at John underscore Kime, and he's got a link uh, directly um, to uh, the interview with RG3 there. John has been – He t- I asked him because I had him on the show today, you know, how he got that interview because Griffin really hasn't talked Tommy in a long time, not about D.C., you know, and yeah. the experience here. And he said that, you know, he's been in, in a conversation with him about doing something. And then Griffin put out a video on Friday um, about uh, him being very active in, in causes involving racial injustice. And he put out this seven-minute video, which was very well done. And John called him up and said, look, we can talk about the video as well. And Griffin agreed to do it, you know, to do the interview. We're going to play a couple of sound bites. We're not going to play a significant percentage of the interview and we'll talk about a couple of the other sound bites. The first one dealt with RG3's perception, you know, and John asked him the perception of you versus the reality reality of you are people surprised when they get to know you. And he said this. And you know to 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 keep it 100, you know the 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 media coverage of me in in Washington um, by you as well was part of that reason that people, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, might have been pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. or you're able to change the perspective or change the narrative. The people who've always known me have always known that I've always been this guy. The people who who really 
sit down and look at what happened in Washington, know exactly why that happened. And, you know, from what I've learned is, is obviously how to navigate it and how to, um, you know, just be to be yourself and, and, and let the rest of it take care of itself. So when I got to Baltimore, um, you know, to be honest, part of the reason I was out of the league was because of that bad perception. So mm-hmm. I was in 17, I was pretty upset about that because I know, I know, um, you know, the person that I am and the teammate that I am. And, um, and, I, and I've had that echoed to me by teammates right. um, that it was, you know, unfair that I had that perception. So when I got to Baltimore, they just kind of brought me in and said, look, man, go be yourself. You know, we'll, we got your back and, you know, we'll hope, hopefully you can show us that you can make, you know, make this team. And I went and I did that. And I think I've, I've proven to the to the Baltimore Ravens and, and hopefully to the rest of the league that um, the the whatever happened in, in Washington uh, wasn't a byproduct of me not working hard. wasn't a byproduct of me being, um, you know, uh, you know, a bad teammate or, or any of the negative things that were written. Uh, that was just a byproduct of uh, an angry coach, and you know, that's just the bottom line. So, I think I've proven. Uh, uh, to the Ravens and, and to the rest of the league, that uh, my character has always has always been what it what it has been from when I came out came out of college, and I'm a hardworking, dedicated person who's going to do whatever he has to do to help the team win. So that that's RG three taking a shot there at the DC media. One of the interesting things about this interview, Tommy, if you listen to it uh, like I did start to finish, at the very end of the interview, Griffin says to John, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm glad we were able to do this without it turning into a finger-pointing session. Well, you'll hear it. All he did throughout was finger-point. You know, and it started with him blaming the media for part of uh, the reason that he was out of football in 2017 and that this narrative about the media, uh, the media's perception of him was wrong. He also referred to, you know, this being a, uh, a situation where he was the product of an angry coach. First of all, on the media, stop. I know where you're going to go with this. I think I can predict it. But... um you're not you're, you weren't the victim here you just weren't there's a lot of stuff that happened that you were responsible for the owner was the coach was but this wasn't media influenced i agree i mean i don't know why you think i'm gonna go if i'm gonna go someplace different i mean the whole victim card that's what he continues to play look this guy's a fraud and he remains a fraud you know he's done nothing to recognize his role in, in the whole debacle that happened here in Washington. Uh, and uh, he continues to do so. He continues to paint himself as some kind of victim. When he left Washington, uh, basically, what did he, uh, he... He posted something on his locker uh, that didn't re- oh, yeah. re- reference him, but... Uh, was some kind of thing. It was a victim that, statement. Uh, you referred to it. Yeah, I, I called it. Yeah, I, I can't it remember it. specifically what it said either, but I remember you being spot on in your description. Yeah, victim impact statement, basically. You know, that's what it was. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm so tired of this guy because he's, su- he's such a phony and such a fraud and, and continues to be so. Uh, I mean, he, he's... He, he just hasn't learned anything, you know? He, 
I mean, he he thinks he's still that guy. Look, this was a guy who told uh, what, what was it, Alex Parker on uh, Channel Nine uh, back seven. then. It's Channel Seven, seven. right? Seven was it Channel Seven? Uh, I apologize I so. for that, Alex. Yeah, Alex okay. is a great guy. Yeah, WJOA. Uh, I think he was Channel that, Seven. I'm almost positive. Yeah, that uh, he was the best quarterback on the team, right. And one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And two days later, he lost his job. <laughs> right. You know, so talk about not having a clue as to reality. This guy still doesn't have a clue. I, I, two things real quickly in response to what you said. Three, actually. One is I agree with almost everything you said. Two, this was a 22-year-old um, caught up um, in a terrible organization, as we know, with an owner who saddled up next to him and made him you know, his best friend, which was an odd circumstance to begin with for a 50-year-old man to be, you know, try to, to, to be become best friends with a 22-year-old rookie quarterback. Um, it was him siding with RG3 over his coach at any, you know, at any turn, which really started towards the end of the 2012 season when Griffin got hurt against Baltimore and had to sit out the Cleveland game and really should have sat out even more than the Cleveland game. And Griffin held his own press conference irate after a big win by the Redskins on the way to the playoffs, held his own personal press conference after that game, which was, you know, supported by the owner. The owner tried to convince the coach that he should play before that game, even though the doctors had said he absolutely shouldn't. And Griffin's out doing his pregame warm-up, much to uh, the dismay of the coaches and the doctors. But he didn't want uh, Kirk Cousins to play. And when Kirk Cousins played and didn't run one zone read the entire game, all hell broke loose after that. There was a trust that went away, even though Cleveland was set up for bootleg after bootleg, and the game plan, Cooley said he was on the team, would have absolutely included bootleg after bootleg had Robert started, and maybe a zone read play or two, but they didn't run zone read a lot in every game, and Cleveland played the kind of defense that basically set it up for a big bootleg and play action game, and Kirk ended up throwing for 300 yards, and they... They won that game and they kept on pace, you know, during that seven game uh, winning streak to a division title. But um, he um, he doesn't take any responsibility for any of it, even though even a casual observer would certainly uh, at least make him partially culpable for what happened here. But I, I do think he entered a difficult organization with uh, a very difficult owner situation where the owner did not understand that you, uh, you, you have hierarchy in the locker room and it's player to coach, not player to owner. Um, and that, uh, that path um, and that relationship was very damaging. Um, but the last thing I just wanted to mention before we get to, to, to the next bite is in listening to him, Man, does he still have the it factor. He is charismatic. He is smart. He is really a phenomenal communicator and thinker. And he talked, Tommy, at the end about being an activist that could potentially lead to politics and a political career. He said he's not looking for it, but if it comes his way because of his activism, I can absolutely picture... 10 years from now, maybe sooner, that Robert Griffin III is still a prominent figure. 
you can tell this guy's always had the the charm and the charisma and the quick, you know, intelligence is one of the things in addition to his incredible athletic ability that's made him so attractive and made him, you know, what he was, which was a star in 2012. Well, it certainly fooled me. <laughs> I mean, I was one, I was his biggest fan. Right. I mean, I was the one who, who thought he was a media darling. He still has he that, doesn't wrong. he? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, he could always find, like, you know, other media maybe who don't have the perspective that we had here in Washington uh, and places that will never see that. It's just hard for me to take him seriously. I mean, there's so there was so much in that podcast uh, that was uh, that that was so phony and uh, false, actually. Which parts were absolutely false? What stuff? Well, this, this notion, and I know this is a big deal for you, and we have a difference of opinion on this, him on this is how hurt he was. In that Seattle playoff game, let's let's play that part first. Okay, <clears throat> all right. Um, this was he was actually asked a lot of the questions led to so much more, but um, John asked him about what it was like to deal with so much scrutiny coming out as the Heisman Trophy winner, and he'll get into as part of this conversation him realizing when he watched the tape of the Seattle game how hurt he really was. And you're coming out of college and, and uh, you have all the excitement and all the hype, and you go out and you deliver, right? You deliver and you, 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 your team wins the division, uh, you, you win rookie of the year, and then you have a bad injury, right? So I think it was all part of it. The scrutiny wasn't, wasn't an issue. Um, I think, um, you know, organ, organizationally you have to have everybody has to have the same vision. And right. unfortunately that just wasn't the case. You know, I, think, I don't think that's uh, lost on anybody at this point. Right. You know, I, I go back and I look. I looked at that uh, 2012 season, uh, 2013 playoffs. Uh, in the past, I don't anymore. But I look at it in the past, and I'm like, man, like you watch the tape, and you're like, wow. You know, I was really hurt. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, and I think the 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 thing that you take away from it is you just you don't. Uh, it's tough to put a young man in that position and. And I'm 30, and I'm still a young man, but I understand that better now. Um, and and I wish it had gone differently, but it didn't, you know. And that's the that's the bottom line. So I don't really sit here and, and cry over spilled right. milk. And uh, you just you move from you move on from it. You learn from it, uh, and you understand that there were a lot more factors in play that were going on there. For me, the bottom line was I got hurt, um, and I got hurt uh, one too many times. And it didn't work out for me. It wasn't meant for me to be a Washington Redskins for for my whole career. That's the way I look at it. Now, there's learning experiences from that. Right. Yeah. Um, do you wish that that everybody was was aligned? Yes. But at the end of the day, they weren't. You know. And uh, that's just the bottom line. You have to move on from it. And I think I've done a good job of that. Moving on to to Baltimore, um, and and really just maximizing the opportunity that I have with such a great organization. So there's a lot there in addition to just the the reference to the to the injury. Uh, but what did you want to say about the Seattle game? Well, uh, he references in there how hurt he was, you know, and, and this is this is this is never gets mentioned. The 
because you can't find it anywhere, I don't think. But we know it exists because you and I heard it. There's him talking to Trent Williams on the sideline yeah, we had, during the game. Right, it was an NFL Films pickup. Sound? It's an NFL Films yeah, pickup, but, yeah. I don't, I, I don't I have it ready that, to go here, yeah. No, okay, do you have it? Are you sure? Well, I know I've listened to it and watched it many times. Okay, okay, go back and look for it. Uh, I could be wrong on this, but it's difficult to find. Where he basically, you know, talking to Trent Williams about, you know, that he's hurt. And then he says, don't tell coach. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, this guy, I mean, basically is on film trying to do everything he can to hide from his coach where you need to be most honest is how hurt you are. That's the time where you need to be the most honest with your coach. And he, he's asking one of the team captains to, to, not to tell the coach. There are several things about that. Um, number one is that the doctors never knew how hurt he was because he didn't allow them to find out how hurt he was. Mike has mentioned many times, and again, this is one of those, do you believe Mike? Do you believe RG3? We know that RG3, after the game, said he wasn't coming out of that game. This was his team. I'm paraphrasing at this point. I'm, I'm actually looking for the quote because I had it here uh, at one point. Um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, here it is. Quote, I'm the quarterback of this team. My job's to be out there if I can play. Um, and to answer the next question, no, I don't feel like me being out there hurt the team in any way. I'm the best option for this team, and that's why I'm the starter. Close quote. There are many people out there that would say that it's not his job to make the decision on, you know, that the team should have saved him from from himself. But he was sabotaging that that opportunity by, you know, not letting Dr. Andrews even look at him, by telling Dr. Andrews at halftime, it's the brace that's making me limp. And they went and readjusted the brace at halftime. Mike is coaching in a playoff game and he's being told by the doctor he's good to go. It's the brace. Remember at halftime, Mike told us when he wasn't there for some of the meetings, Kirk was going to start that second half. That Mike thought he was compromised, but you know he had to rely on the doctor, and the doctor said he's fine. It's the brace that's bothering him. It was also, you know, my view. It was a playoff game. It, 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 Philip Rivers had played on a played on a torn ACL in a playoff game, and nobody said boo about it. Uh, Griffin what didn't want to get pulled out. They wanted to win that game. And the description that you and others had of him carrying his leg around as he was moving was a major ex- go, was a major is, exaggeration. You, you go way off the rails on this, Kevin. Well, Zabe described it that way. And listen to the play-by-play of Redskins' voice of the Redskins, Larry, Larry Michael, of RG3 during the game. Nobody described it worse than the Redskins' own play-by-play guy. What does that mean? I'm I'm, I'm telling you what I saw watching the game. And you or Zabe came in the next day and said that he was carrying his leg around, which was was hyperbole. The the team spokesman who had everything to gain by by covering it up. That's funny. You know, basically said, basically described the guy who was crippled playing the position. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I was there in the stadium. He was, he shouldn't have been in the game. Um, I would say most people feel that way. You're ne- that's one of those I don't think you'll ever be able to change my mind on it. Uh, I during the game I remember thinking, man, should he be in this game? But after hearing all of the stories about essentially the cover up of him being hurt, I don't blame anybody for not pulling him. I don't. Uh, here's the. There's so much to this interview. I, I, we'll play one more soundbite here and and talk about this one. This was the, the, the soundbite where John asked him whether or not his personal ego played a role in what happened in Washington. I, I don't, okay. just because, you know, I, I, I don't look at it that way anymore okay. or at all because, like you said, it, it, I think it's been well documented what yeah. kind of went, went on there, and that was, a, uh, that was a power struggle between the owner and the coach, and I got right. stuck in the middle. Yep. So, um, you know, it's really tough to be in – you know, it's tough to be an African-American quarterback uh, in the NFL. And uh, you see nowadays, like I think our past two MVPs have been yeah. uh, African-American. Uh, you got you know, my, got my guy, Russell Wilson, uh, you know, going out there doing their thing. And it, it's starting to turn the tide. But African-American quarterbacks have always been scrutinized in a different way, whether people would like to admit that or not. And that's part of this conversation. You know, right. it's part of the – uh, systemic racism. It's part of prejudice. It's part of those stereotypes that we're trying to eliminate. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think that that played a role. I don't know on an individual level. I'm not calling anybody anything. No, I got you. I know you. it played a role. I know it played a role somehow. And uh, at the end of the day, it was a power struggle between the owner and the head coach. And I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and uh, I paid for it. You know, at the end of the day, I paid for it. But I think that um, that experience has made me a better man. It's made me a better a better leader. You know, it's it's helped me in uh, steering as much as I possibly can. You know, my teammate Lamar Jackson in the right, right direction. All right, Lamar's his own man, and, and I respect him for it. But the uh, the advice I've been able to to give him and, and those conversations that we've been able to have, I've only been able to have them because of the experience that I had. And uh, I don't think anybody wants that experience. But at the end of the day, you have to maximize your experiences in this life. And I think I've, I've tried to do that to the best of my ability and, uh, you know, give that to the Ravens the best way I can. Well, there was a lot in, in that answer. First of all, the beginning of it, he doesn't take any um, – uh, he, he doesn't believe his personal ego played a, a role in anything that happened in D.C. I think most would, would disagree with that. He talked about the power struggle between coach and owner, and that's fair. And was he stuck in the middle? Yes, he was. Uh, I don't believe that what he believes, which is that he had a coach that never wanted him. I don't believe that. Mike never told us that. Mike expressed concerns about drafting him, but was on board with drafting him. He was not at gunpoint forced to go along with the RG3 selection. And in fact... But it, but it was not his idea. The idea to trade up for a potential quarterback, he was not against. God, you and I do this. We've done this so many times. I've got to go back and play it for you again. Mike has told me this. I've, I've followed up with him in recent years. He was not against the trade. He was, he was 
worried and concerned that they were going to have to play football a different way, and he wanted Dan and Bruce to understand that and made it very clear that Robert was not ready to be your traditional drop-back quarterback, that we were going to have to play football a different way, and were they okay with that? They didn't know what that meant because they don't know anything about football. Um, But Kyle designed the offense, and off and running they were. And the other part of this is that even Robert, I think, in the past has admitted that the relationship between he and the teammates and the coaching staff, even at three and six, was really good. There weren't any issues there. The issues started after he got hurt and after Cousins played because there was tension, as Colt McCoy has mentioned before, between those two from the jump. Because Kirk was ready to play a traditional style of football. And Robert wasn't. That wasn't what he did at Baylor. But it really didn't matter. They were having success. They won seven straight games. They got to the postseason. And then he mentioned this thing about race um, playing a role in what happened uh, in Washington. He said race played a role in some way. What do you think he was referring to? I'm not sure. What do you think he was referring to? Uh, I didn't know, and I asked John this morning. And John said, I think he wasn't referring to anybody specifically or the organization, but just the experience overall of the black quarterback and the pressure and then the opportunities or the limited number of opportunities that um, you are afforded if it doesn't work out in a big way right from the jump. John thinks that he was referring to, you know, that that he, you know, there's a lot in this interview about 2017 and him being completely out of football and him not getting more opportunities to start. He had to take this Baltimore opportunity because it was essentially one of the only opportunities out there. And he nearly didn't make the team the first year he was in Baltimore. He had to play well in a preseason game against Miami to solidify his position as uh, you know the third-string quarterback behind Flacco and Lamar Jackson two years ago. And then last year is the backup behind Jackson. There is this sense that he has that he should be starting. You got that sense, right? Oh, yeah. And so I think uh, John's feeling was the reference to race playing a role in some way was, you know, black quarterbacks not being afforded, you know, the same second and third chances, um, you know, after, you know, a, a failure, so to speak, which 2013 and 2014 clearly were. Yeah. But this was, this was a black quarterback with, uh, baggage that a lot of people in the league didn't want to touch. And he was, he was, look, he, uh, talk about, I mean, he was basically, uh, you know, I, I, I got an argument with somebody, oh, Amy Trask, on uh, the former Oakland uh, front office executive on, on Twitter one time, basically to something RG3 posted, uh, tweeted something to the effect, about how the Redskins really screwed this kid up. And I tweeted back to her. I said, as someone who had a front row seat, trust me, uh, he wasn't a victim of a virus in Washington. He was a carrier. Yeah. And he was. He, was a ca- he, wasn't, he wasn't the disease, but he was a carrier. 
it's it's definitely worth the full listen. He finger pointed at the DC media. He finger pointed at Mike Shanahan. He finger pointed at the power struggle between uh, Dan and and Mike. Um, he finger pointed towards race. Um, he didn't take any accountability for anything that went wrong in DC on his own. Not once. Did I miss it? I don't think at any time did he say, you know, I've learned, he, he talked about learning a lot from the experience, but not from mistakes that he made in his experience. I don't think I heard that once. John gave him the opportunity. Yes, he did. Apparently he says, uh, one day he'll write a book and tell everybody what they want to know about what happened in Washington. When you said yes, he did. Yes, John gave him, afforded him the opportunity. I think he did. Yeah, I, I do think too. John did. I, th- I thought John did a good job. Right. Uh, uh, you know, Griffin's going to write a book someday and really reveal all the truth. I wonder if there'll be a chapter in there about his honeymoon on Snyder's yacht. Ooh, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about this before. I know. I, and I and I have no reason not to talk about it either. Um, there are people that believe that that may have been a salary cap infraction. Well, that's not. I mean, that's. Well, I guess there might be some teammates who might wonder. Well, I got married. I didn't get to you know to use the owner's yacht for my honeymoon. I mean, the yacht is the symbolism of the entire problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not it the really only is. owner with a yacht. No, but I mean, in this Jerry's case, got a big case, one. With RG3, the yacht explains everything. <laughs> yeah. The because, fact that again, he was able like, to use like, it for his honeymoon. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think Corey Lichtensteiger was able to take his vacation on, on, on Snyder's yacht. And you could or, make or the case, else. you could make the case back in 2011 uh, when Corey Lichtensteiger got hurt, the whole season went to hell in a hand bucket. Yeah. Yes, you could. <laughs> yes, you could. He, uh, you know who he never mentioned in the 45 minutes was the coach that publicly destroyed him much more than the angry coach or the coach that didn't want him. Jay Gruden. I don't think I missed it, wasn't mentioned once. Uh, his anger, his resentment is towards Mike Shanahan, towards what happened at the end of 2012 and then in 2013. It's not necessarily what happened in 2014 and 2015 when he ended up becoming ultimately a backup. But in Jay Gruden's first season here, he became so frustrated with Robert that he went public in a story with Albert Breer on NFL.com that was unprecedented for a coach killing a player publicly. It was unbelievable the things that he said about Griffin in that story. Called him a coddled player, um, talked about him you know, needing to, to stop talking and start playing. Um, there was a level of frustration and anger there that you never hear from a coach. I'll never forget John Thompson, who was still on the air, I think, at the time when that story came out on 980, saying, you don't do that. Like, even if it's true, you don't do that as the coach. You don't publicly, you know, cut somebody off at the knees like Jay did. But Jay was never referenced in this interview, I don't believe. I don't think so. 
couple of other things real quickly, and you'll hear it if you listen to the interview. Um, He talked about whether or not he communicates with any of these people. He said that he's reached out to Mike and Dan and Kyle. He's heard back from Kyle. He wished everybody a happy Father's Day, heard back from Kyle, but that he hadn't heard back from Mike. He really implied that he doesn't have much of a relationship with Dan either. Did you get that out of it? I did. Yeah, I did as well. Uh, I'm kind of surprised at that, I guess. I, I guess there's no more yacht privileges. Um, Mike, uh, I do remember several years ago, John claims that he said it with us, or he said it on a show with me, maybe after the interview, that first interview that you and I did. I thought it was on ESPN or NFL Network where he said that he had reached out to, to Robert and had a conversation with him. But that's neither here nor there. Obvious resentment for for, for Mike. Um, and uh, he also talked about Dwayne Haskins and, you know, he's rooting for him. And, you know, they talked briefly after the preseason game and they follow each other on social media. So if Dwayne ever wants to reach out, he can do that. And then the last thing that he referenced is he went after Chris Cooley and Santana Moss. He talked about how Cooley and Moss were so supportive of him in 2012 and when they were teammates with him and how they, quote, betrayed him, closed quote, after the fact. Specific to Cooley, he's really referring to Cooley as a media member and those film breakdowns that he did of Robert's games in 2013 and 2014 in particular. And Cooley was harsh. There were, there were moments, I'll never forget the Tampa game in 2014, where Cooley came in to do his you know, very popular film breakdown segment, and he said, I could not evaluate anybody on offense because the quarterback play was so god-awful. It was as bad as I've ever seen, and it didn't allow me to evaluate the other players because they weren't able to give, they weren't given a chance to do their jobs. He really got after RG3 in some of these games on that film breakdown, which he did with a lot of players. He did not yes, he hold did. he did not hold back when he thought somebody played poorly and there were a lot of players that had an issue with Cooley during those years when he was doing you know when he was doing film breakdown even with me and he was critical of performances what he told what he, what he and I talked to him about this yesterday and he said I had a conversation with Robert I'll never forget it I told him if you disagree with me if you think I'm wrong I'm right here and if you recall Cooley's studio right there next to the you know right by the front door at Redskins Park please come in I will make time we can sit down we can watch the film and you can tell me where I'm wrong and Griffin never you know took that opportunity but he felt very betrayed by Cooley he felt betrayed by Santana Moss who was very critical in the media of Griffin and he suggested that the reasons that Cooley and Santana Moss were critical of him were their media responsibilities and that this was a way to get an audience I'm paraphrasing there but yes uh they were the last on his hit list um during this interview yeah I uh, I was surprised that he did that uh I guess we'll read more about that in his book uh, you know, <laughs> why, don't you offer, why, don't you, why don't you offer to ghostwrite it for him or help him with it? You know what? You know, you know, <laughs> that would be funny, wouldn't it? Yes. That, 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 that would be funny. 
Uh, it, it, the fact, look, I mean, that just goes to say, this, I mean, how does he act in Baltimore? Do they treat him with kid gloves in Baltimore? I don't understand how this guy can do this and then get away with being a teammate in Baltimore. You know? Well, Tommy, here's where you have to just open your mind a little bit. We both agree that Baltimore is one of the top flight, top to bottom franchises in all of the NFL. Quality people from the owner down. I just can't imagine if he were that bad um, on the field or off it that that Jim Harbaugh, John Harbaugh, would put up with it. He must, I know. He must be totally different. Now maybe it's because he's not starting. And he's not playing. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of humbling through that process, don't you think? Yes, I would think so. Maybe that's the case. Uh, I just, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, when he talks about Washington, he just reverts back to the way he was in Washington. He must be a totally different guy. All right, what else? That's it. We went long today. That's it, boss. All right, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Have yes. a good weekend. Have a good weekend. All right, we're done for the day. I will, I promise, be back with a podcast tomorrow.